Last week we looked at the first half of Romans chapter 6 and we saw how in Christ, by being united to Christ, uh, our, our very nature has changed. We've died to sin and we've been united with Christ in his resurrection and so we are alive to God. And that was Paul's answer to the objection that some people had to what he was saying where they said, well, in light of what you're saying, isn't it better that we stay in our sin so that more grace may abound if grace abounds where there's, where there's sin? And Paul says, well, no, how, how can that be? Because you've died to sin. You are a new creation in Christ. He goes on in the second half of chapter 6 to answer another objection. Uh, and it's a question of a freedom we've been set free now in Christ what does that mean for the way we live are you free what do you mean, what do you think of when you talk about the idea of freedom we may say we live in a free country what we mean by that is we're free generally to do what we want we can choose our own career we can choose where we live, who we relate to. We can do things like come to church to worship without the government prohibiting us or forcing us to do otherwise. We live in a free country. Of course we know that within the freedoms that we enjoy here in Australia there are still restrictions. For example, we're free to come to church but we're not free when we're coming to church to drive on the right-hand side of the road. Not only is it foolish to drive on the right-hand side, but the police will come and will restrict our freedom by forcing us to stop, forcing us to drive on the left and they'll give us a fine of about $270 according to the, the website. But of course no one ever complains about that law because we know that even while in one sense it restricts our freedom to do whatever we want we know that there's actually a freedom that's found in obeying that law we know that when everyone else is obeying that law we can drive confidently and safely on the road without any fear that there will be someone coming the other way and we'll we'll have a crash. So within the freedom of our country, uh, there are good laws that are in place that actually uh, enhance our freedom. Now what would you do if the government announced that while driving on the left is a good thing, they were abolishing the law? that says you must drive on the left. No longer would you be pulled over by the police. No longer would you be fined for driving on the right-hand side. Would you then say, well, okay, I'm going to drive to church on the right-hand side of the road this morning, just because there is no longer any law against it. Technically, you're free from the law and you can do whatever you, you want, whatever you please. Or would you continue to obey the law 
even though it's not over you, for your own safety and for the safety of others. That's what it means to live in a free country. What do we mean when we talk about personal freedom, my individual freedom as as a person? If I say I am a free person, what do I mean? Normally, I think most people would mean by that that uh, I'm free to make my own decisions without being coerced, without being manipulated by someone else. We, we think that freedom means that I can think for myself without having someone else uh, tell me what I must think or what I must believe or what I have to do. Today, to think that I'm a free person often means that means no one has the right to tell me that my actions are wrong, to disapprove of what I do or the way I live my life because it's up to me to decide what is right and good for me. I think that's how we think about personal freedom. But is that really true freedom? Let's see what Paul has to say. In 6.14 he tells us that sin will no, have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Because of this, he says, sin uh, no longer has dominion over us. Sin no longer rules us or defines us. See, if we were under law, then sin would ultimately be our master. Because all that we do, all of our decisions, would be based on our thinking, uh, if I do this thing, will the law tell me that it's wrong or right? Everything we do will be based on whether we're going to be punished or not by the law. We'll always be looking over our shoulder in case judgment comes for our deliberate or even our accidental breaking of the rules. We may all at times have experienced this kind of feeling when we've been under an authoritarian person whether it's a parent or a spouse or a teacher or a boss. We're never quite sure if we have their approval or not. And so we're, uh, we're always walking on eggshells. We're never quite sure if they're going to be angry with us for what we're doing. That's a crushing thing, isn't it? To, to think that we're always under the frown of another person. And even more so when we think that person is God, when we're under his law and we're never quite sure if what we're doing meets his approval based on his law. In that case, when we're under the law, God's law, sin has dominion over us because every action runs the risk of being considered guilty by God. So we live in constant fear of condemnation. That's the, that's the slavery, the bondage that the law brings us into. The Gospel message says to us that Jesus Christ comes to set us free 
from that oppression. While the law brought us into condemnation as far as God is concerned, now God's grace has come in Jesus Christ and we are no longer under condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We no longer live under the law, but we live under his mercy and his forgiveness. We live under his grace. As we saw last week, sin's power over us has been broken because we've been united with Christ and so we've died and been raised with him into newness of life. We are a a brand new person, no longer motivated by fear, fear of condemnation, but instead energised and motivated by grace, by the freedom of God's mercy. But in response to that, some may say, as we see in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Or to put it another way, if I'm I'm now free from the punishment that the law demands, if I'm free from condemnation, if God has forgiven all of my sins, past, present and even future, does it really matter then what I do? Because even before I do it, I'm already forgiven by God. Does it really matter whether I sin or not now that I'm free in Christ? I think many people today would answer that question with a no. No, it doesn't matter what I do. Meaning, well, God is love, as Christians keep telling us. God is gracious, he's merciful, he's accepting. And really, he's okay with me because the things I do, the mistakes I make, they're not really that bad after all, are they? I'm not really a bad person and so I can do whatever I like. As long as I don't hurt anybody else, that's the... That's the key morality today, isn't it? Do whatever you like, just don't hurt or offend someone else when you do it. Do what I like and I'll be okay. God will forgive me. It's his job. He's obligated to forgive. Of course, I'm not like those other people, the murderers and the embezzlers and the pedophiles. They should never be forgiven because they've done something really, really bad. But... I'm okay. Now that kind of view is based on a wrong understanding of God's grace. Grace isn't that God is this big softy who looks at me and says, well look, your mistakes, they're not really that bad after all and so I can just overlook it and not worry about it. I'll let you off the hook. That's not grace. Grace is when God comes face to face with the sinner, the defiant sinner, and says, even though your sins are so heinous, so so bad that they deserve eternal punishment, I will do what is necessary for you to be forgiven and to be set free from judgment at no cost to you but at great cost to me. I will send my own son to take my wrath in your place. That's true grace. 
true grace magnifies the significance of sin and the terror of God's judgment and then shows us how God how good God is that in light of that he should still pardon us. Grace isn't a flippant dismissal of sin, but a lavish a lavish pouring out of God's generosity despite our sin. So if we think that being under grace means we can trivialise sin, we've misunderstood grace. Well, the first half of chapter 6 tells us that our nature has changed through dying and rising with Christ. The second half of chapter 6 tells us that we still have a responsibility as human beings created in his image to hear and to obey God's word. In fact, grace transforms the nature of that obedience. Whether we like it or not, we will always be obedient to someone or something. There's really no such thing as free will, as I often hear Christians talk about it. Um, Sometimes I hear someone say something like this, When God made human beings, the greatest gift he gave them was the gift of free will. They must be free to love God of their own volition because love can only be genuine if it's freely chosen. Adam and Eve were not pre-programmed to love God. They had a free choice. And by creating human beings with free will, it meant God was willing to take the risk that they would choose not to love him. That's, in essence, uh, what I hear some people say. But was this actually the way it was? Let's think about this. Let's think about God and how God is free. We know that God is love. Love is at the heart of his nature. It's who he is. And God always acts in accordance with his nature as love. God isn't just loving, it's not just something he does, it is his nature. But we also know that God is free. God is not coerced by anyone else, he's not restricted by anyone else, he's sovereign over the entire universe. And he freely chooses everything that he does. He's not obligated He chooses freely to act. But we don't say that God isn't truly free just because he always acts in accordance with his nature as love. Just because God as love could never be the author of evil, we don't say, well, God is not free in that. God's freedom, his absolute freedom is demonstrated by the fact that he always acts in accordance with who he is as love. Now let's think about ourselves. Human beings are made in the image of God. As such, we are designed to be creatures who love. Adam and Eve actually were pre-programmed to love just as they were pre-programmed to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to rule over it 
It's an essential part of human nature that we are designed to be those who love, love God, love our neighbour. They were never meant to be free agents, living life based on their own decisions without influence from God, their creator. The very essence of human living is seen in Jesus' words when he prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done. We know the fullness of our humanity, the full freedom of our humanity when we submit our wills to the will of the Father. So real freedom for Adam and Eve was to be found in obeying God. When God commands human beings to love, it's not so much that he's presenting them with two equal and opposite options. I give you a free will, you can either love or you can choose not to love. What he's saying is he's telling us how we are designed to operate, how we are to function properly as creatures made in his image. His commands define for us who we are, what we are. And so to step outside of those commands is to step into dysfunctionality, to step into death. To step outside of God's commands isn't to step into some kind of uh, free autonomy in which we become our own masters. Disobedience to God's word always involves obedience to someone else's word. We see this in the garden with Adam and Eve. What happened? They heard God's word that told them you may eat, but don't eat from this tree. Then what did they do? They listened to another word, the word of the serpent, of the devil. When he said, has God said, no, you won't die. And so they obeyed that word instead of God's word. And when Eve looked at the tree, what happened? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Uh, to say that her husband was with her, not just talking about location, he was with her in that decision. He was one with her. They made that decision together. You remember last week I talked about the head and the heart and the hands that have been transformed by us being united to Christ. Well, we see those three in operation here with Eve. She saw that the tree would make her wise. That's the head, her thinking. She looked at the tree and it was a delight to her eyes. It was attractive to her. That's her heart speaking. I desire this. And then she saw it was good for food. It was good for her physical body, for her hands and her feet. To see how things are a little bit upside down, aren't they? Uh, we, we saw last week that uh, as our 
thinking is transformed, that flows into the things we set our hearts on, our affections, and then that then determines our hands, the way that we live, the way we use our physical bodies. But where did the woman start? She started with her body, good for food. She wasn't thinking, how can I use my body to serve and to love? She was thinking, how can I use that fruit to gratify my physical desires? And then that then shaped her affections. I really want this fruit. It's pleasing to me because it's going to satisfy something within me. And then that shaped her thinking. She thought it would be wise for her to take the fruit and eat. So instead of letting her head and her heart and her hands be informed by God and his word, instead she listens to her own head and her own heart and her own body. She obeyed her own desires, desires that had been distorted and twisted by listening to the devil's word instead of God's word. So Adam and Eve simply exchanged their obedience. They gave up obedience to God for obedience to the devil and obedience to their own fleshly desires and the result was death. They didn't become free. They just changed their allegiance. And ever since that moment, human beings have lived under a bondage, a bondage of our wills, where we're unable to choose anything good in respect to God. Now sure, we make all kinds of free decisions every day of our lives. We decide, I'm going to get out of bed. It's normally the first decision we make every day. And then all the way through our days, we make decisions uh, that are, in a sense are free. We, we choose them, we decide them, we act on them. But this freedom that we have is it's like the freedom of a person who may be living a life just like anyone else, eating and drinking, working in a job, engaging in recreational activities, spending time with friends, yet they're doing all of this inside a prison. There are prison walls that surround them and they're unable to escape this prison. Even though their life might look like they're free, they're actually prisoners. What's Paul saying to us here? Paul is saying that grace, the grace of God means that those prison walls have been torn down. No longer does sin or death or the devil hold us captive because they were all empowered by the law. The law that said you are condemned for breaking the command. So we're free. The the prisoner, the, the walls have broken down and the prisoner technically is free to say, well now I can go off and live my own life. I can leave this life and do some, and be my own boss. But grace also means that our allegiance has changed. Our heart has changed. We've seen the beauty of Christ. We've seen his matchless love in giving himself up for us at the cross. He's given us a new heart 
so that when he asks us, as he did to Peter, when he asks us, do you love me, we're able to answer, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter spoke those words on behalf of all of us. We also know his words in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So instead of the prison that was made by the law, which we needed, we needed that prison, we needed that prison to show us that we truly are in bondage to sin and death. Instead of now living in a prison, we've been brought into the Father's house. We're welcomed, we're adopted as children with the same rights and privileges of the only begotten Son himself. And this is a house without locked doors. We're not kept in by coercion or force. We're not trapped. But when we're there in the Father's embrace, why would we want to go anywhere else? Why would we even want to choose the old prison of sin and death when we know the the joy of spirit-filled obedience to the Father? Six verse twenty three is a well known verse. It appears in a lot of gospel presentations, uh, and uh, like three verse twenty three, which says, uh, "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift." This is a, a verse that you may hear as someone is sharing the gospel. And it shows us very succinctly this change, this change in motivation that happens for someone who has encountered the grace of God. It tells us that the wages of sin is death. Wages are what you earn. You receive a wage that corresponds to your work, hopefully if your boss pays you fairly. So if we give ourselves to work for sin... If sin is our master, if sin is the thing we give our allegiance to, then we receive the wages, and the wages are death. Death is the payment that matches the work that we do if we are living under sin. This is what the law has told us. The soul that sins will die. God said, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. We should expect nothing more and nothing less if our allegiance is to sin. But by contrast, the free gift, or the the word there means literally grace gift. It's, It's from that, the Greek word, that means grace. The grace gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. On the other hand, grace, on the other hand, isn't something that we receive because we've earned it. It's given freely. It's a gift. It's despite the fact that we haven't earned it. So no longer do we need to obey in order to receive favour, to earn approval. Instead, because we have already received favour, because God's grace is upon us, because we are under grace, 
we joyfully obey. In the Old Testament law, there was a wonderful provision in place for the freeing of slaves and also for joyful, voluntary obedience. People weren't, uh, in the the Israel, people weren't bought and sold as slaves as we know the uh, more modern experience of kidnapping people and treating them as possessions and selling them on to another another owner. People would enter into slavery voluntarily in order to pay off a debt. But the law said it could only be for a maximum of six years. In the seventh year, that slave was to have their debt cancelled, regardless of how much they still owed. But the law also had a provision for someone who had completed their six years but their master had been good and generous. And it says, if the slave plainly says, so this this is a slave who's come to their sixth year and their master has said, well now the law says you're free, you still owe me a lot of money but I'm cancelling your debt, you're free to go. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Uh, He includes my wife and my children because he knows his responsibility is to provide for his wife and children. Then his master shall bring him to God, meaning to the tabernacle, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. In other words, um, put a stick through his ear, pierce his ear, and he shall be his slave forever. The slave voluntarily enters into this covenant with his master and says, why would I want to leave my master and be my own master when my master is so good and so generous to me? He's cancelled my debt. And I am now free to continue to work for him and be provided for by him. This slave is is under no legal obligation to do this. But it's his master's generosity to him that makes him want to do this. He would say, why would I want to be free from this good and generous master? With him I have everything I need. I would rather be bound to him and be treated as one of his own sons than to go out into the world and be my own boss. We see this principle applied beautifully in the New Testament in the book of Philemon where Paul is, uh, is with an escaped slave and he writes to the slave's master and says, uh, to summarise, you're now in Christ, things have changed for you. Welcome back, Onesimus, you're a strange slave, but don't welcome him back any longer as a slave, welcome him back as a brother. That's the transformed relationship that happened between slaves and masters in the first century because of the Gospel. This is the liberation of grace, of living under grace. We can freely joyfully offer ourselves as 
slave of God because we know his abundant goodness to us. And when sin comes along and threatens to have dominion over us, we can say, no, you're not my master. My allegiance is to Jesus, my Lord. All you, sin, all you can pay me is death, but he freely gives me eternal life. Shall we sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant, lavish grace that has reached down into our darkness and our despair and our loneliness and our bondage into the prison that we built for ourselves, the prison of, uh, of sin, where sin is our master and where we, we obeyed the word of the devil and not your word. Father, your grace has reached uh, to us in that place and has uh, taken us out and placed us now into your household uh, to be members of your family, to be your children, to be free. Father, we, uh, we know we are free but not free to just do anything. We're free to obey you and what joy there is, Father, in hearing your commands to us your commands to, to love one another as I have loved you, your commands to, uh, to go out and make disciples of all nations, your commands to, uh, to be peacemakers, to be those who love, to those who show mercy, to those who display your goodness and who are ambassadors of your kingdom. Father, all of your commands are so good to us because you are so good to us. Help us, Father, to know the freedom that we have in your grace, uh, the freedom that sets us free from sin and our bondage to sin and the freedom that enables us joyfully to be your servants in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's finish with our final hymn, which speaks of this. Uh, wonderful, joyful allegiance we now have to Jesus our Lord. Let's stand and sing.
children and to joyfully obey Jesus our King. In his name. Amen.